Well, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, some of my favourite verses in Ephesians, probably a lot of our favourites, as a summary of what God's done for us in the Gospel. Let's just start with the structure as we have before. So three verses of being dead in our sins, and then, but God, this great turning point hinge where everything changes, and then we're alive in Christ. And then I found it helpful to to use the linking words. When we said before, you see the word therefore, you ask what it's therefore. I think that goes with the so that in verse 7, and then the 4 in verse 8, and the 4 in verse 10. So it's, we were dead, we're now alive, so that, and then a purpose, and then two explanations, because verse 8, because verse 10. So should we sort of follow that structure and talk about these zombie verses? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to kick us yeah, off? Yeah, well, we're walking and we're dead, yeah, which hence zombie. Um, and yeah, there's some of the most um, sobering verses about our natural state outside of Christ. Um, sometimes uh, Christians talk about the world, the flesh and the devil, and you get all three mentioned in these verses. So, um, yeah, we were following the course of the world, following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, um, and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Um, that's the flesh. So people say, well, I'm free. <laughs> um, how do you know you're free? Oh, well, I can do whatever I want. And Ephesians, uh, Paul says, oh, yeah, that's a sign of your captivity. You're following, you're, you're captive to the devil, captive to the world, captive to your own desires. That's all. There's nothing else you can do. You're stuck. It's like a heroin addict injecting, saying, I'm doing what I want because I really wanted heroin. But you're sort of trapped by it. Yeah. Um, and the worst of all is the end, that our relationship with God, that we're under his righteous wrath, awaiting his judgment. Um, so you can't even say, well, I like this captivity. It's, it's a captivity that doesn't have any future to it, um, because God will judge it. And this language of being dead already, so obviously we're going to die, we're mortal, we're already dead. And I think the Bible sort of distinguishes between maybe three senses of death. I wonder whether Paul actually gets this by meditating on Genesis, because in the Garden of Eden, the command that Adam and Eve broke was not to eat the, from the tree to the tree in the middle of the garden. And God said, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And they eat of it, but they don't die that day. So you think, was God wrong about the timing? You know, you'll die, you'll eat in the day you eat of it, you will die. But I wonder whether Paul's meditating on that, and he realizes correctly they do die on that day. They, they don't physically die until Adam's 530 years old or something, some years later. But spiritually, they're already dead, headed for physical death, and then headed for what the book of Revelation calls the second death, the, the wrath of God in hell. Um, yeah, it's an awful thing. And we'll see, contrasting as well with the new life which we have in Christ, I think one of the... the points of this passage is to underline it was by grace you have been saved and what better way to emphasize grace than the image of death to life because when Lazarus comes out you no one goes at what did you do they always say <laughs> what happened to you as in the point of, of a corpse is it, it relies on an outside agent and um, nothing underlines grace more than realizing how impotent we were in our death 
Yeah. We, we noticed already at the beginning of chapter one, the we and you language. So Paul talked about we who were the first to hope in Christ, I think in chapter one, verse 13. And then you also, meaning you Gentile Ephesians. I find it really interesting that we get the same thing here. So you were dead. It's, this sounds like a Jew talking to Gentiles, which is you know how they would have seen the pagans. You pagans walked in the devil's way. But then in verse three, among whom we all. Hmm. So even though a Jew could look down on those who didn't know God, Paul then sort of puts himself in the same shoes. They well, look without Christ, I'm in the same boat as you. So this whole theme in Ephesians of unity between Jews and Gentiles, between everybody I mean, in Christ who's a Christian, it actually starts with the unity in our depravity. It's a great leveler. You know, we, we had the same problem. Yeah. And then the same ex- amazing experience of God's love. So in chapter one, he opens up a gap and then collapses it to pull the Gentiles up to the, the level of Paul and the people of God. In chapter two, he opens up the gap and then pulls the Jews down to the depth of the Gentile without Christ. Hmm. Yeah. And then this great reversal, but God. And you said, you know, it's emphasizing that it's God who did it. I wonder whether like almost every verse in a different way tells you this wasn't you. And it wasn't even a bit you. It was like, you know, 100% God, 0% you. And one of the ways that he does that is that God just is the subject of every verb, if it's an active verb. And then if it happened to us, it's a passive verb. So God does things and things were done to us. So God... What loved us, made us alive, raised us up, seated us. Um, all God, all verbs that God did, and then things that happened to us. You have been saved. Um, we were dead. We were saved. So we're we're basically bystanders as things happen to us by Him not bystanders because we're involved in it but you know we're we're passive we we don't contribute anything at all yeah and the the reasons um why we've been saved you now get a whole bunch of them should we should we look at which ones are underlined one one of which is um verse seven what's the reason we've been saved well i love verse seven because i think this say that is kind of it chimes in with something we've seen already in Ephesians that the what is the gospel for? And it's not just so that I get saved. And so from my perspective, that's good news. And we can focus on that. But there's a bigger plan in Ephesians, which is I'm saved into this church. That is the display of God's glorious grace to the ages. And we're going to see that a few times more. But I love to say that. Why did God do it? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable witness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So it's God wants this to be on display forever (laughs) like monument of mercy that everyone can look at and go wow wasn't god great yeah and this whole thing about the ages i think literally in verse two in which you walked following the course of this age i think i don't know where the esv is translated as world but i think the word is the course is age compared with the coming ages so there's not just a dead alive timeline for the christian but there's also a present age coming ages timeline for the world. So as in, 
this world in which the the devil has sway and is at work in people this is temporary and it's passing and where people can defy god and shake their fists at god and get away with it that's that will go out of date because in the coming ages the only thing that's on display is god's kindness and his rule and his enemies are put under his feet as we saw in the last chapter so yeah i i, I just love that i think if you fast forward a million years and people are still testifying to what Christ did for them, and that's still on display at, to his glory on the throne. And that, that, so that's verse 7. And then, and then reasons negatively why we've been saved. Well, it's definitely not our own doing, and that it's not our works. Um, and the, like when you run through, um, so what are the main reasons we've been saved? Well, because of God's love. Um, he's rich in mercy because of his great uh, love. With Let me highlight this as you say them. Hang on. So you got because of his love. Verse four. Verse four. Yeah. Um, well, because to, to the praise of his glory, verse seven, so that forever he will be seen to be glorious. Um, not because of what we do. And then verse 10, so that we do good works. And I wondered whether it was just worth putting those in a grid and working out if we erase one what have we lost in terms of um you know our spiritual health so if if we didn't have verse 10 that we say for good works so that's i'm just going to highlight this in verse it's interesting pair so verse 9 not result of works verse 10 for good works so there's a not works there's a yes and a no to works in different places yeah, so you're going on. So you're saying, what if we if we eliminate some of these? So if we get rid of the verse 10 one, then I could be excited about the gospel, but I couldn't. I may just forget that the whole point is that I then live for God. And so you might just say, I'm saved, just so that I'm saved. Say what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or if I erased verse eight, then I could, I'd, I wouldn't be as humble as I should be. Uh, I'd think, well, you know, the difference between me and my neighbour is that I'm a little bit more sparky or more moral or more spiritual. No, it's nothing to do with you. It's not your doing. You were dead. Um, so it's important for my humility. And the, the, um, the verse 7 one is just to remind me that um, it's for God's glory, that I'm not the, the end point. The end point is that he should be praised so that I don't just enjoy my status, but I, I give praise back to him and continually remember you know he's the one behind it and then verse i think the one that i sometimes christians forget is verse four um his love um so it's not just not because of me it's because he loves me and i can rest in that and know that you know as we saw in chapter one we're his treasure um and we've got that security and joy of being loved by the lord and that's we mustn't let that one drop yeah this um interplay between it being nothing to do with you but then you have something to do or not by works but for works it's kind of key isn't it because ephesians will discover you know sometimes people say um you mustn't ever talk about god's commandments because that's legalism but Actually, Paul is going to talk quite a lot about commands. In fact, he even quotes from the Ten Commandments in chapter 6 when he honour your father and mother so that it will go well with you. So God does want us to obey him and he wants us to have 
to fulfill his law as we um as we live a life of good works but it's about getting those in their right place so how would you describe the the sort of relationship between faith obedience works how do we get them in the right place and not i don't think you can do much better than having uh, eight to ten as memory verses so not as a result of works but for good work so paul puts it as crisply as you can mm. that it's not our merit um that our works have no zero place in uh, making us acceptable to god but you know once we've been uh you know once the orphan's been brought into the king's table adopted he's gonna uh, part of the the plan is that he, so he carries out carries on the family likeness and you know it's like the one who saved him so of course for good works is is the great privilege and i love that um it, it, this is in a passage all about god's um uh, sovereign grace so that i don't just i think sometimes as christians we think you know god saves us and then we pay back by good works or um it's actually the other way I, I give thanks for my salvation and then i give thanks for the good works because they are we are his workmanship so even you know what god has enabled me to do now I, I give great praise back to him for that so in the category of which was us and which was god everything is for god so he <laughs> yeah. saves us the faith that we have is not our own doing it's the gift of god so he gives us the faith and then the works that we do well he prepared them and created us to do them so it's like there's no part of it that isn't him it's amazing to me that if you were to summarize the gospel most christians would say something like christ died for our sins so we could be forgiven mm. you know which is a good summary of the gospel i mean paul in 1 corinthians 15 says that but here the first thing he says about the gospel is the resurrection saves us which again it just shows how i suppose the work of christ it has these different facets we've already talked about the ascension in chapter one now we're talking about the resurrection and then he's going to go on to talk about the cross it's not it just shows us there's different angles on the same thing but i wonder whether what i'd always miss because i'd always taken this passage in isolation is this this is what the resurrection of christ has done for you so it's not you say if you ask the question when did this happen well i was converted in 1994 but actually this happened in AD 33. Mm. It's not actually really about my conversion, it's about Jesus' resurrection. As that, you know, and I'm plugged into that by faith, and then it happens to me in Christ. So um, chapter breaks are not original, and actually this is a continuation from the immeasurable power at work in us who believe. That work, that power did things to Christ, raised, seated him, and then chapter two continues straight on and raised and seated us. And so this is all illustrative of God's commitment to um, the plan for his church. Um, and he's, he's fully invested in it and we, we can enjoy that. And it's this mentality of things happening to us in Christ. Cause I mean, you don't look like you're seated in the heavenly places, Adam. You're seated on my sofa, which is, you know, a very nice sofa. But it's not, this isn't the glorious heavenlies. So we are where Christ is. Um, we've been raised from the dead because Christ has been raised. We're seated in the heavens because Christ is in the heavens because we're in him. 
But again, it's this theme in Ephesians that it doesn't look like that. So you need the eyes of your heart to be enlightened to see this because you can't tell. And, you know, we're living in a comfortable house in, or comfortable houses in London, but the Ephesians were living, you know, in maybe some of them in poverty and some of them in persecution, Paul in prison, as we'll find out later. So in prison doesn't look like in the heavenly realms, but this is the reality that's true of us in Christ that one day we'll see physically when the Lord returns. But for now, we need to trust and sort of perceive by faith. And it's a deeper and stronger reality because it was predestined and it was where we are headed to. So let these trees be bigger in a horizon than the things we can see out the window. Yeah. So as we think about this passage, we're brought lower as in who we were before. Then we're brought higher, like we're actually in heaven already. And the point is, all of it's Christ doing. All of it's him in his resurrection. And then, as you said, we need each of the clauses just to shape our response. So not by works and no boasting. No Christian has a right to look down on another Christian because who, who you are is by God. So no boasting, no... Laziness, I suppose. No laziness because you get on with working, yeah. Yeah. And then all the other two, it's about him, not about us. Verse seven, it's for, to show off his grace. But then verse four, he loves us. Don't be discouraged. You're, you're loved by the Lord. Again, I think, you know, we can study it in, I don't know how long this has been, 20 minute discussion, but this should be fuel for day by day by day. And you could actually take a clause, couldn't you, each day in your, in your time with the Lord and, and, and make it a cause for praise. Lord, I used to be like this and go through each of those verses and, but then you did this and you did this and you did this. I, I, I think the Ephesians isn't just for a quick Bible study. It's, for, it's to fill our prayers and, and thoughts through the whole week. Amen. Amen.